Hey now, welcome to another edition of the Inside BS Show. Today, we are going to talk about your employees. And I know what you're thinking. I don't want to talk about my employees. Please, the last thing I want to do is talk about my employees. But you know what? We have to talk about your employees because there are some things you're doing wrong. There are probably a lot of things that you're doing right, but there are some pitfalls that with a little knowledge you can watch out for. And my guest today, Susan Lawrence, is going to help us avoid those pitfalls. And you're even going to find out a couple of things that you didn't know that may be to your benefit. So please join me in welcoming Susan to the Inside BS Show. Susan, thanks for joining us today. I can't wait to jump into this conversation. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for the invitation. I really look forward to our conversation. All right. So first, let's talk about how you became an attorney who focuses on employment law. And then I want you to explain to the folks who are listening, the folks who are watching, there's two sides to employment law, right? People are on one side or the other and explain why you have to be on one side or the other, please. All good questions. So um, my path to the employment law space was predicated on my uh, need for constant stimulation, frankly. I was doing um, general business litigation and um, it was great. It got me into court a lot, but it was sort of the same fact pattern. You know, someone signed a contract, someone failed to pay for the um, goods and we need your money. Um, no disrespect at all to people who practice in that space, but I was really missing the human aspect of it. Uh, and I also fairly quickly realized that I didn't want to just be fighting all day long with everyone about everything. The employment um, practice, at least in my firm, is the best of both worlds because I get to be on the counseling side, helping people, hire people, fire people, um, drafting employment agreements, drafting termination agreements, um, investigating sexual harassment claims, um, uh, doing training, what have you. And then I also handled the litigation piece. So it was a way for me to um, keep my foot in the courtroom, but also get to really know the clients and really help and be a trusted advisor to them, sort of be their um, inside, outside counsel and um, human resource advisor all at once. And so I love it. I truly love my job. It's a different scenario every single day. I'm great at cocktail parties because I have stories for years. Um, and, uh, you know, can, can also then feel constantly enriched and, um, and stimulated. So, um, you know, it's a great question if you need to be on one side or the other. Historically, um, I practice on the employer side, which really gives me an opportunity to know employers' pain points and know what other employers are doing and bring that level of experience and, uh, industry knowledge to my clients. Uh, I definitely do represent employees, though, from time to time if they're negotiating employment agreements or if they are um, coming to me to, to determine whether or not I think they have a legitimate basis to say they've been wrongfully terminated. And as much as that is not my sole focus, I think it is helpful that I know how the other side thinks. I know how the employer approaches these situations and can bring that level of understanding into uh, conversations and negotiations on behalf of employees. So I think you can straddle both um, both of the of the lanes, um, but admittedly, I tend to assist with the employer side more than the employee side. 
Yeah, and it makes a lot of sense because unless you have a huge natural presence, it's hard to source really good employee side cases, but every employer needs your help. So, yeah, I mean, frankly, uh, you're constantly hustling on the employee side because it's a one and done situation unless, God forbid, this poor employee keeps getting fired time and time again. Whereas my employees or employers and clients, you know, call me every day, five times a day to say, you know, so-and-so was late again. What do I need to do? And he's African-American and gay. What are, how does that play in? Uh, and then if that same employee gets fired and brings an EEOC charge, I get to handle it throughout the entire life cycle. So, you know, there's sort of a laziness component on my part that I don't have to keep um, finding a client um, for a one and done situation. I can build up the relationship and follow them through the whole life cycle. Well, we don't call that lazy. We call that good <laughs> strategy is what we call that. Thank you. So Thank you. <laughs> I want you to help us with this. Okay. So I grew up uh, in the hospitality business and we had so much fun at work every single day. And I think back and you know, Susan, we're talking about for me, like 30 years ago, I think back to some of the things we said and we did at work. And I feel in a way kind of bad because with the work environment in most places has become, has gone the other way, has become sterile. And listen, I'm not saying that some of the things I said or some of the things my friends and I did were right or appropriate, but I know a lot of business owners now, a lot of successful people who are scared to death that they can't laugh, joke, and have fun. So help us with some general guidelines about how we can keep a workplace fun without crossing a line and making people feel uncomfortable? I mean, it's a great question, and I'm right there with you. I grew up um, working in restaurants, and, you know, I was the cute little co-ed um, at the hostess stand of a restaurant and would constantly get um, inappropriate comments made my way. And truthfully, I didn't even think of them as inappropriate, right? That wasn't in, in our vernacular. I gave it as good as I got. And grew up in a law firm environment at a time when that wasn't completely frowned upon either. I mean, you would constantly hear the stories of the older bosses, um, you know, complimenting the young associate. I had a judge in the um, early 2000s tell me how nice it is that they're letting girls be lawyers, right? So this is not some archaic concept. This is stuff that, of course, still goes on, but um, it has a... A spotlight shined on it in a way that um, never has before. And um, I am constantly getting this question from my own clients of, you know, part of the way we create a cohesive, sticky type of work environment that employees want to stay loyal to and keep coming back to is by forming bonds and relationships. If we sterilize it, then no one's going to feel any sort of connection to their coworkers. And the second someone dangles a little bit more money in front of that, they're out of there. So how do we thread that needle? And the reality of the situation is there is no law that says you can't hug somebody. There is no law that says you can't compliment the way someone looks. There is no law that says you can't have friendships. What you can't do is do anything that's unwelcomed. So if you don't know that that person wants to be hugged or complimented on their new haircut or you know told they look like they've lost some weight, 
don't go there, right? If there's this element of just sort of common sense that needs to be put into the conversation so that all of those um, organic relationships can take place, but the inorganic ones, the ones that are forced upon somebody, just don't. So, you know, I am never here to be the civility police. There is not a case law um, line in, in the nation that says no friendships, no no pats on the back, none of that. But if, if you have to um, ask, Eek. Did that person really find my dirty joke funny? Because she sort of stood there with her arms crossed and she leaned back. And when she saw me coming the next time she exited stage left, then it's probably not welcomed. And it's time for you to use your own common sense and be like, yeah, no, I'm going to, I'm going to dial it back. Um, it's, it's so easy just to say, well, I guess we can't have any fun in the workplace. And that's just simply not, not the case. It's all about making sure you know your audience and that any such conduct is truly welcomed. Not that I intended it to be welcomed. Not that I didn't intend to offend you. Your intent, my intent, is completely irrelevant. It's how the person receiving it is going to, to feel. And if, if you don't feel comfortable that you can state affirmatively that I know my conduct is welcomed, it's time to kind of um, tweak the way you're interacting with your coworkers. So part of this is quid pro quo, right? It's the boss and what the boss is doing, but there's another part of it too. And it's creating a work environment, right? Talk yeah. about the difference between third party and quid pro quo issues, because a lot of employers and I, I work with entrepreneurs, I work with professionals and they think to themselves, well, I'm not the offending behavior person. So if, you know, if it goes on on the shop floor and I'm not there, what am I supposed to do about it? No, no, you, you need to make sure that you're creating a workplace that doesn't make people feel uncomfortable. Explain third party uh, issues versus quid pro quo. Sure. And I think it's a great question, especially in Illinois, where we now have a responsibility for all employers, regardless of their size, to do annual sexual harassment prevention training. So these are things that every employer, entrepreneurial startups, 500 people companies need to, to, to be talking about. So what you're really talking about are the two legal theories that are recognized both Illinois and uh, nationwide at the state and at the federal level. Quid pro quo is Latin for this, for that right? If, if you sleep with me, you'll get the promotion. If you refuse to sleep with me, I'm going to put you on third shift for the rest of your career and you're never going to advance out of it. That has to be conduct by a supervisor to a subordinate. Um, if it's a coworker to coworker kind of interchange, that would not rise to the level of a quid pro quo claim. Um, you know, I think the way I would explain the evolution of sexual harassment claims is that a lot of bosses and coworkers got wise to the fact that that's a big no-no. Even, even the Neanderthals know that you can't be that overt. So what you saw come out of that recognition is the hostile work environment theory of sexual harassment, um, which can be coworker to coworker. It does not require the supervisory relationship. And to your point, it could be third party. So it could be your delivery person that's coming in and interacting with your receptionist every day. Um, it could be a client, and those are really sticky, thorny, awful scenarios because you might get advice from someone like me that says you have to part ways with that client. I don't care if it's your, you know, your largest client. If they are um, creating a hostile work environment for your employee, you're just taking on way too much liability. 
So that theory is essentially um, what you said, that the behavior is unwelcomed and is so either severe or pervasive, um, and I'll circle back to that in a second, um, that it makes it intimidating or unreasonably difficult for the person to do their job. Um, it doesn't matter the gender of the person, either the um, accused or the, the victim, sexual orientation, what have you. Um, men can sexually harass men, women to women, women to men, men to women. Um, the severe pervasive piece essentially says that either the conduct needs to be so severe, touching someone in an inappropriate place, um, making an extremely offensive um, comment, that it only needs to occur once to rise to that level of a hostile work environment. If it's not that kind of conduct, it needs to be pervasive throughout the workplace, that it's happening constantly. You're constantly um, looking at someone's rear end as they walk by. You're constantly asking them about um, their sexual history. You're, you're constantly sending inappropriate texts. Um, then it would create uh, a pervasive environment that could rise to the level of a sexual harassment claim. Um, and in those instances, when it's not a supervisor to employee scenario, the courts look at it from a negligence standard. So to your point about, you know, this is going on on the shop floor, I don't know about it. The standard for an employer to have liability is either we knew or we should have known. So if it's the worst kept secret, um, or um, yes, the person hasn't come complain to you, but all you have to do is walk down the floor once and you see how she's being subjected to, you know, pictures that are um, posted um, on her station or, you know, cat calls or whatever else, you as the employer are going to be um, found to have uh, had knowledge about the conduct and then you have to act. You have to do something to ensure that the conduct doesn't continue um, and that you are um, ensuring that the workplace is, is free from that kind of harassment. You cannot sit and wait for an employee to make a formal complaint. You know, I hear often that employers will say, she didn't really complain to me, but she mentioned, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, but I, I don't want anyone to get in trouble, but I, I just think you should know this. Well, that's a complaint. You don't get to wait till a document is signed and handed over on, you know, a legal pad. You have to act the second you either get notice or you see something that, that puts you on notice. And you know my theory as a as a manager has was always that you're you're never really off duty, right? So let's talk about uh, and again I'm going back to my own history. Like back in the day, I ran a sales team, and every time we would close a big deal, I take everybody out in, in the office out for drinks, right? And then I'd be on the curb, basically handing out twenty dollar bills to taxi cab drivers to get these people home, right? Now, though, I realize that even in that environment, you're you're like a cop on the beat. You're never really off duty. So anything that would happen in that environment would have exposed me. Is that correct? It's a perfect statement. And the way I explained it is um, the workplace is extremely broad. And to your point, you never take off your um, employer or coworker hat when you are with your coworkers, um, whether it's off-duty, whether it's on weekends, whether it's at a happy hour off-site, whether it's at a client meeting in a different country in the lobby bar after you've, you've sealed the, the deal. Um, the workplace is an incredibly broad concept, and it essentially 
um, adheres to any time, date, or place where you are with your workers or clients or, you know, holding yourself out as um, their supervisor or their coworker. So let me put it this way. If our only defense in a sexual harassment claim is it happened at a bar and not in the office, we're, we're losing that case right out of the gate. All right, let's let's shift gears a little bit. And now uh, let's talk about some of the things that need to be in place to make sure that we that we keep the work environment uh, in a manner that allows everyone to be comfortable and productive. Right. So the proverbial employee handbook. I mean, can I like the handbook that I print off of the website that I get for thirty nine ninety five that has all those boilerplate documents on it? Is that that does that is that good? I mean, or does that get me in even more trouble because it's too broad, too generic? I think I would take a couple of steps back um, first. There is no legal requirement that you have an employee handbook. Full stop. Um, and frankly, I would only encourage you to have an employee handbook if you're going to adhere to it. Do not put policies in place, even the ones you download for $39.99, if you're never going to look at them and you're never going to enforce them. The name of the game in virtually all employment um, relation legal issues is consistency across the board. So if you're going to have an employee handbook that's got an attendance policy, but you allow the white man to come in 20 minutes late and you only adhere to it for the pregnant female or the African-American gay guy or whatever it's going to be, you're so much worse off than if you never had the attendance policy in the first place. Number one, once you've gotten yourself to the point of, okay, I need policies. It's the wild west here. We got to have something in place that I can point back to when I want to discipline someone for taking too much vacation or whatever. Um, you know, consider this a plug for the employment lawyers in the world. A $39.99 off the web um, employee handbook is as good as the paper it's printed on, right? Um, if it doesn't speak to your culture, if it doesn't speak to the size of your um, organization, right? Somebody with five employees cannot provide three weeks of paid vacation. It's just not workable, right? A company with 500 might have to if they're going to stay competitive in the market. So I really think if you've gotten yourself to the point where you need to have a handbook, I think it's worth spending the time to go to a reputable employer-side lawyer who's going to have these kind of conversations. Tell me about the culture. Tell me what's going to incentivize your employees. Then let's put those policies in place, right? You don't need a robust expense reimbursement policy in your employee handbook if you don't have any salespeople. So I think it makes sense to invest in that money but ultimately, at the end of the day, then you got to do the follow through. Then you got to adhere to it on a consistent basis. Um, and then that sends the message also to the employees that, okay, my employer has his act together. She understands what the policies are. And I now have clarity and visibility on the expectations. Um, so I think there's a lot of benefits to it. Um, I just don't want it to be sort of an uh, afterthought that we'll just slap it on and expect that that's going to have some sort of get out of jail free card um, properties. 
Yeah, like anything else, if you're just doing it to check off a box, it's not gonna it's not gonna make a lot of sense. Um, so, Susan, I want to ask you about the remote work environment now, and I want you to I want you to think about some differences from a from a remote work environment compared to uh, an in the office work environment. Before you answer that question, I need to remind folks that. Today's show is brought to you by Sandrowski Corporate Advisors. For over 35 years, Sandrowski Corporate Advisors has helped people with some of the thorniest issues they face related to their taxes. If you own a business and you're thinking of selling your business, there's nobody better to call than the team at Sandrowski Corporate Advisors. Why? Well, there's two times that you really need to think about your business structure, and that's when you start your business, and the second time is today. Why? Because if you're thinking of selling your business anytime in the next five years, there are certain steps you can take now to make sure you minimize your tax exposure as the owner of a business when you're ready to sell it. If you're looking to connect with with someone who can help you from the standpoint of minimizing your tax exposure, Sandrowski Corporate Advisors is absolutely, they're absolutely the folks to call. In addition, if you need help with expert witness work or forensic accounting, or you just need some litigation support, Sandrowski Corporate Advisors, again, is the team to call. Why? Because they work with attorneys all over the country. They have offices in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan, as well as Chicago, Illinois, but they work with people all over the country. And what they do is they support them from a forensic standpoint, as well as from the standpoint of helping them with anything related to the value of a business or significant accounting work in the process of litigation. Here's how you can reach them. I want you to give this number a call, 866-717-1607. That's 866-717-1607. My friends at Sandrowski Corporate Advisors will get you fixed up even if you've made some mistakes in the structuring of your business. They do this all the time. We're also brought to you by My Revenue Roadmap Guide. If you want a business plan that will help you build your book, whether you're in professional services or you're an independent sales professional and you focus on relationships, the Revenue Roadmap Guide will help you do that. Go to this website right now, revenueroadmapguide.com, revenueroadmapguide.com. Enter your contact information there. You can download for free my Revenue Roadmap Guide. It's my gift to you for listening or watching the show. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you being here. Okay. So, Susan, we talked a little bit about, I mentioned remote work, right? What has changed? I mean, I could be at home in my fuzzy slippers and my bathrobe making sales calls and nobody's ever going to see me. Even worse, I could have had, you know, a couple of shots at lunch and then been on the phone and start talking to customers. How do we manage a remote workforce these days? I think we just manage it, right? I think this is a time where the managers have to step up and do their job as opposed to being able to um, allow things to just happen organically um, because we're all in the workplace. This is a time that we have to lean in a little bit more because, spoiler alert, it's not going away. This is not a time where we're going to suddenly all get back to work five days a week. It's just never going to happen. And, you know, I've had some tough conversations with clients who have said, I need all my employees back in the office tomorrow. And this is where I wear the counselor side of the counselor at law title. I have to say to them, 
you will have attrition like never before because your competitors are going to continue to allow the work remotely concept. You are not going to be able to recruit top talent because your competitors are going to continue to allow it. So if 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 the reason why you are anti-remote uh, work is simply because, oh gosh, it's so much harder to manage my employees, I, I'm sorry, that's that's just not an acceptable answer. You have to just manage them that much more. Now, I think what you're also asking is, are there privacy rights that we need to be cognizant of? Are, do we have the ability to be asking for more check-ins and face-to-face -face Zooms? Yes to all of that. I mean, there's really, even in a state like Illinois that is quite employee-friendly, employers have a lot of rights and a lot of abilities to uh, ensure that their employees are productive and responsive and to then terminate their employees if they're not. Um, I recommend that you have those kind of regular check-ins and really start papering the file if somebody is not showing up for the Zooms or they're refusing to turn on the camera or they seem to be impaired or um, things are not getting turned in on a timely basis. Start doing yourself the favor of keeping track of that. Send yourself an email. Um, do a follow-up email saying, you know, per our discussion, I'm waiting on these three reports that were due last week. Once you have that kind of documentation, you can move forward with terminating someone, even if it's based on this, this personal belief that they're just not as committed because they're working from home. Uh, it is still fair to say that working from home is a privilege, not a right. So if you start having employees who are saying, you know, I don't want to come back in, I only want to work remotely. Once we get past the practical side of, are you sure you want to say no to that because he or she's going to leave? Um, we need to take a look at why is that? Uh, and is it something that we can accommodate? Is it because of a disability or is it because their kids are home and they don't have childcare? You know, we need to look at this on a case by case basis in some instances to make sure we're not running afoul any sort of discrimination or disability um, laws and then determine is there something that we can do to meet in the middle? But um, I just think it's very important for all employers, especially those who are in the service industry that don't have people, you know, on a line building widgets to appreciate that we are in an unprecedented time where the concept of work-life balance has been uh, accelerated in a way that we never would have gotten to but for a global pandemic. And I just think this is here to stay. So it's incumbent upon managers to to just become that much more engaged in the management process as opposed to just saying it won't work and moving on. Yeah, and it's also important to remember too that there are there are companies that have pulled this off successfully for years. I mean, JetBlue was a pioneer in this space. They they hired people who worked from home to be customer service reps, to be reservationists, and you know you had people who would would take their guest room and pop a computer in there and a dedicated telephone line back in the time when we had dedicated uh, you know hard telephone lines, and they would field reservation calls overnight in their house. People have been doing this forever, so don't think that you're a pioneer in uncharted territory here. I think common sense is uh, is part of the part of the equation here that is often missing. And Susan, to this point, 
how and and we're gonna we're gonna get into another thorny area here after this. But how do we? So if I am a I'm a firm believer my, myself personally. I'm a firm believer in focusing on outcomes with the people with whom I work. Right. So and I've done this throughout my entire career, even with hourly employees. I would say here's here's the final outcome that we're looking for. You know, I appreciate that you're that you're punching a clock, and I know you like some tasks better than others. So this is the outcome for this task. If you get it done in three hours, I'll give you something more fun to do afterwards. It doesn't have to take all day. Can we compensate people based on outcomes in like a work from home environment in order to incentivize productivity, like jobs that are typically hourly jobs? And if we do that, how do we structure that so that, you know, we're, we're in compliance with the law and we don't end up having any labor issues? I mean, that's a very, very thorny issue, um, and s- especially when we're talking about hourly uh, non-exempt employees, meaning those that are entitled to overtime. Um, record keeping is of the utmost importance in those types of situations because the employer has the obligation to pay the employee um, for any work that they allowed to occur, and inc- as well as work that they didn't allow to occur, but that occurred. Um, so when you get into a situation of paying them not by the hour, but by the productivity, the, the number of widgets bought, uh, built, what have you, you know, you need to make sure that you are still recording time such that as soon as they work, at least in Illinois, more than 40 hours, they're getting paid overtime. So that means you have to figure out how that correlates. If you are just paying them based on productivity that still has an hourly value when you figure out how many hours they worked and then that hourly value gets attributed to the overtime. So, you know, at the risk of sounding like, um, and I'm trying not to answer your question, this is one of those situations that should not be entered into lightly. You really need to make sure you're staying on the right side of the Fair Labor Standards Act if you're not going to pay someone on an hourly basis. That being said, if you are paying someone on an hourly basis and they are working from home, I respect and appreciate that it's really hard to feel confident that the person's actually working the hours that they say they work. And it again, it's the employer's responsibility to maintain all of those records and then to pay them based on that. So uh, there's great um, technology out there at this point in time for people to be able to log in and log out. You can rely then on um, on the technology maybe a little bit more than someone's, uh, you know, scribbled post-it that this is the number of hours I worked. Uh, what I would say, though, is if you're starting to doubt the num- the legitimacy of the hours, you still got to pay them for the hours they say they were worked, and then discipline. And, you know, write them up for fraudulently um, tracking their time and move towards termination. But you can't get into the business of just saying, you know what, I don't believe you, so I'm not going to pay you. That's a quick ticket to the Department of Labor and an unpaid wage claim. Okay, so now now we're uh, I want to I want to talk a little bit about contractor versus employer uh, employer employee relationship, right? Yeah. So uh, you know I know about direction and control and and that sort of thing, but I you know I I still get confused. So like you know realtors, for example, or Uber drivers. I mean, those are some classic examples of. Listen, I'm not telling them how to sell the house. I just want them to go and sell the house and, you know, I'll give them the tools to do it and call me when you're done, right? Contractor, employee, how do we figure out 
if they're a contractor, if they're an employee, because we just want to do the right thing. Let me tell you about this recent case that just came out that um, really kind of highlights the complexities of this issue, because this was a case brought by an individual who asked the company to be deemed an independent contractor. This was not something that the employer prompted or recommended. Um, and, you know, something is good as long as it's good, right? He recommended or requested that he be treated as an independent contractor. Fine. We went along and did that. Uh, this was not my case, by the way. Um, then the the relationship went south. The parties decided to part ways. The individual went and filed for unemployment. And the company's response was not our employee. No unemployment was was paid in. Therefore, uh, he shouldn't be getting any unemployment. And as often is the case, that turned into a company-wide audit by the um, unemployment agency. And they blew the whole thing up. So it wasn't any sort of defense to say, look, this is what the individual wanted, right? So um, again, the premise should always be, the default should always be employee unless we can clearly establish that we have no control or virtually no control over the individual's work product. And ideally, that the work that the individual is going to be doing for us is so wildly different than what we are uh, doing at our core. So the example I like to give is I work at a law firm. If my law firm wants to hire someone to create a new website for us, uh, we are not in the website designing business. We don't have any specialty in that. The individual that comes in to perform those texts are going to be able to do those without any real oversight from us, other than maybe saying, you know, these are our typical colors. This is the font we like, but we're not going to get into the weeds on that. That's uh, an appropriate independent contractor relationship. If I want to hire someone, though, that is going to do some research, case research for me, or some analysis on a file. And yeah, maybe they also do this work for a different firm, or maybe they only do this work on weekends. Um, I have a really hard time um, believing that either the unemployment agency, the IRS, what have you, would view that as an appropriately uh, classified independent contractor. And the rub with this is, it is subject to um, cross-sharing from agency to agency. So if an unemployment agency goes in and blows the whole company up because they're going to do an audit of all of your independent contractors, not just the one person who brought the claim, they can then share that information with the IRS to say, you know what, they should have been doing withholdings all along. Um, they can look at whether or not someone should have been subject to health care benefits and on and on and on. I'd love to say these are hypotheticals, but I've had, unfortunately, several clients who have said, um, you know what, we're going to just run with this as long as we can. They understand that they can't file for unemployment. And then fast forward two or three years, and suddenly it is worth so much more um, problems than it was actually ever uh, benefiting the company in the first place. So my, my overall recommendation is don't go there, even when someone says, I really would prefer to be deemed an independent contractor because I don't want taxes taken out. I think it's you're in the best position to say, I respect that, but I'm not willing to take on that risk for my company. Okay, so question I have for you goes back to something that I used to teach people as a best practice, but I, I stopped doing it because it became really hard for them to manage, but I'm interested in where it, where it would fall in the eyes of the law. With a sales organization, let's say, right? They're hiring people and they get down to two or three candidates and they say, okay, here's what we're going to do. 
for these first two weeks, you're going to be an independent contractor. Go out and get three leads, and I will help you close the leads. If you get the three leads, we're going to hire you, right? And you're going to get paid, uh, you know, a flat rate for the two weeks, but we're not going to give you any direction. We want to see see what you do. We used to call this the tryout, right? Is that is that kosher in the eyes of the law, or is that no longer a good practice to do? It's not kosher. Um but it's one of those that I would tell my clients, we need to do the risk benefit analysis on that one. Because let's say uh, you ended up hiring the person and you end up having a, you know, two, three, four, 10 year relationship. The likelihood of them ever being able to say, remember that three week period, uh, you should have been paying me overtime, or I should have been getting health insurance. And I actually had a claim during that time and had to come out of pocket. I view that as such a de minimis risk that maybe you take it. I would not advocate it. Frankly, to me, it's just as easy to fire someone in that quote unquote trial period and still treat them as an employee all along. So long as we're properly documenting things and following up with them about any performance issues that I don't really see that you're getting a whole heck of a lot by not treating them as a W2 right out of the gate. But by the same token, um, I think the fact that we then hired them in the exact same role that we were um, treating them well, as we're an kind of admitting our own guilt, right? <laughs> Aren't we admitting that, that they were an employee? We just didn't want to do the work. <laughs> That's what I would call a bad fact for us, right? I mean, that is one of those things, you know, courts will say, how do we know whether you've misclassified? Well, if you have four people doing the same role, two of them are independent contractors and two of them are employees. That's a really bad fact that the person should have been an employee all along. Okay. So one more scenario along these lines, because a lot of entrepreneurs are doing this, right? They hire a, um, like a virtual assistant, right? And the virtual assistant is, let's, let's just say for argument's sake, they're a U.S. person and they work for three different people. And what they're doing is they're billing, you know, they're doing assistant work, but they're billing through their own company, you know, uh, Joe Smith LLC, virtual assistant company, right? That's a company that you're hiring. So there's no risk there. Am I correct in assuming that? Well, you know well enough to know no lawyer is going to tell you there's no well, risk. Well, but the, the risk of them, <laughs> the no risk of them being classified as an, they're working for five other people. You're not restricted. They're yeah. not restricted to just you. The company is the per, is, is the entity sending the invoice. And, you know, Mitt Romney said corporations are people, right? So the company is a separate entity. So is, isn't the risk minimized in that in that scenario? It's a much less risky proposition. There's no doubt about it. The, the mere fact that the person's doing the same tasks for multiple other people is a, is a positive fact. Um, different scenario is you are using an actual agency who's sending you the people. In that case, the agency is the W-2. There is a W-2 taking place. There is an employer that you can point to, to help bolster the fact that you are not the employer. Now, without getting too far into the weeds, there are joint employment issues in that scenario where you're both going to be deemed an employer if something goes sideways. But the more that you can distance that and show that they have the trappings of someone that you're not controlling, you're not preventing them from doing the same or similar work for somebody else, the stronger your case is going to be. You can put some protections around that insofar as you can um, include language in the independent contractor agreement, which sidebar, please have a written agreement. It's, it's not a get out of jail free card, but it's going to be so helpful to you 
if and when you need to end the relationship. But um, what I would say is that you are allowed to have non-solicitations within those kind of agreements, meaning they can't come and solicit your employees or your clients. Uh, I would not recommend having a non-compete, however, in those agreements because right there you're shooting yourself in the foot. The whole concept is supposed to be that they're able to go work for a bunch of di uh, different companies. So be uh, mindful when you approach those kind of relationships and uh, make sure you're appropriately documented. Okay, um, let's talk briefly about background checks right now. So where we're concerned, we want to get the right people uh, set aside drug testing. It's a separate thing. I don't want to talk about and, and I don't I just don't want to get into it's we could talk for an hour about drug testing. We're not drug testing, right? Yeah. All the best candidates okay. would be unavailable if we drug tested. So we're not going yeah, so to we're not going to we're not going <laughs> to drug test. But but we want to do a background check. We want to make sure that the employees aren't compromised. Um, so that means that we're going to ask for references. We're going to call the references. And my best practice there, and I want to hear what your opinion is of, on this, when I call references, I don't, I don't care what that person says because this is the person that the, the candidate gave me. I ask that person who else they worked with, and then I call those people. So when I'm calling to check references, is it permissible for me to ask the reference, hey, who else did you guys, when you guys worked together at Winn-Dixie uh, or, or ShopRite, um, who else did you work with? Oh, we worked with Jane. Oh, do you happen to have Jane's number? I'd like to call her. And then I call Jane. Is that is that permissible as I'm doing a background check? So when I hear background checks, I think of criminal and credit background checks. So let's. Well, let's, yeah, I was gonna get. I was gonna get to yeah, that. But this let's is go this to is that you know, this is yeah. uh, this is uh, you know me checking to see their work style and that that sort of thing. I would have sure. done to to your point. I probably would have done criminal first. Um, you know, I've never done credit, but I know other people who do credit. So talk about credit, criminal, and then my little method of being sneaky Pete and figuring out what, whether they were a good worker or not. Yeah, absolutely. So what, what you're describing to me feels like reference checks, uh, right, exactly. which, yeah. you know, not to get marred down in the vernacular, but from a legality perspective, there are different implications. And we'll talk about those in a second when you're doing a criminal background check and or a, a credit check. So a reference check is fairly unregulated. Um, there's nothing to prevent you from doing that. There's no privacy interests that are implicated. Um, I would say that anyone who has done these on behalf of companies have probably been told by people like me that when you get a call like that, you should really just give dates of employment and last position held. Do not get into nobody um, ever. Nobody ever sticks to that. That's the beauty of it. I know. We were, when I was at Marriott, it was beaten into our heads. Do not ever do anything other than confirm dates of employment. But you know what? If it was my friend that was going for another job, I would say what a great employee they were. I would never sure. badmouth anybody. Yeah. But if if somebody if it was somebody I liked, I would want to do everything I could to help them. But you're you're right. You should never do any of that stuff. <laughs> And even more so now in Illinois, you should never tell them. And uh, conversely, in your scenario, you should never ask for how much they got paid. So Illinois now has a Pay Transparency Act, which essentially says the hiring employer cannot ask or, or know um, how much the person made because the thought is that that perpetuates pay disparities between genders and ethnicities. So don't ask, don't tell at all on that. When you're calling Winn-Dixie and, and um, that person's 27 best friends, just don't go there. Try to get more about 
personality-wise. Don't ask about what year did they graduate from high school. Don't ask about their political affiliations. Don't ask about how many kids they have. Do they want to have kids? You know, they're 27. They've got to be thinking about it. Don't go into anything that tips into a protected characteristic. Because as soon as you do that, a court's going to infer that you either refused to hire or decided to hire because of one of those protected characteristics. But just doing a little due diligence and asking um, questions, so long as you're staying outside of those learning areas, is, is totally permissible. Once you get into the true background check piece, meaning you are using a third party to conduct those background checks, um, you now are subject to the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Um, that means you need to get written authorization before you run the background check. There's a specific form. Don't go getting creative and drafting your own form. These are statutory forms that you need to use. And you, in Illinois, can only use it after a conditional offer of employment has been made. So sure, you can put the acknowledgement on, the, on a separate page, but on the application. It cannot just be at the bottom of the application. It gets that granular. But you can't run the background check until a conditional offer of employment has been made. Uh, also in Illinois, you can only rely upon convictions. You cannot rely upon arrest records. The EEOC and Title VII then comes into the fray to say, you really can't look back more than seven years. I have no idea what's so magic about seven years, um, as opposed to five or ten. But you're not supposed to run the check longer than ten years, and you're, or, excuse me, seven years, without being that um, we base our criminal justice system on rehabilitation. And so if there have been no issues since then, um, you can't look back that long. The truth of the matter is, if it's something serious enough, they're probably still going to be in jail if it happened um, much sooner after that seven-year period. Um, then you need to, before you can um, decide not to hire someone, remember you've already given them a conditional offer, so now you're going to revoke the offer. Before you can do that, you under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, you have to give them a pre-adverse action letter. Again, it's a statutory letter. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. It's going to say, we found some stuff. We think it's you. You've got 10 days to tell us why it's not. And maybe it's you interposed two numbers in their social security number. Maybe it's, you know, you found their dad and not them. Whatever it is, you were supposed to give them time to prove that to you. Now, the truth of the matter is, if you've ever have to, had to go to one of these credit agencies uh, or background check companies, nothing happens in 10 days. Nothing's going to be cleaned up in 10 days. But you still have to go through the motion. Once the 10 days has come and gone, if they haven't been able to assuage your concerns, then you send them the adverse action letter. Again, statutory letter. It's got all kinds of required language. And at that point in time, you can formally revoke the offer. Before you can do any of that, though, Title VII and now Illinois law, this is a relatively new Illinois law, says that you have to do a person-by-person, case-by-case analysis to, in order to be able to establish that the crime for which the person was convicted, not arrested, convicted, bears some relation to the job you're hiring them for. So if you're hiring a receptionist who happens to have a DUI, there's not a lot of job relatedness there. You're not going to be able to say, this is going to call into question their ability to do their job. So my legal advice to you would be, you probably have to hire them anyways. Um, you know, that, that's got all kinds of tricky elements to it because, you know, someone's in a safety-sensitive role and they uh, have a theft um, on, their, on their record. 
is there job relatedness? They're working around equipment, uh, but it's not, you know, a bodily harm kind of crime. We need to go through that analysis. And the reason is African-Americans and other minority groups are found to be disproportionately convicted of crimes. So if we are just have an across the board, we don't hire convict policy, we will be um, disproportionately um, preventing different demographics from entering into our workplace. Uh, the credit check, I won't bore you with all the minutia, but suffice it to say, Illinois really restricts those types of employees that you can do a credit check on. If you don't have an employee that has unsupervised access to funds in excess of $1,500, um, you probably can't do a back, uh, excuse me, a credit check. If you don't have someone that is writing checks on behalf of the company or um, monitoring bank accounts or whatnot, you probably can't do a credit check. And it's for the same reasons. We want to make sure that we're not um, adversely impacting certain demographics from entering into our workplace. And Susan, I'll tell you something. The best salespeople I ever hired were deep in debt. And they were, they were the hungriest. They right. were the hardest workers. They would kill themselves for the extra cash because they needed it. I would tell them, go out and buy an expensive car. Do what you, buy a new house. Do what you got to do because I know that's going to keep you motivated. So I would never, that in a sales role, I probably would never, unless they had access to classified information, which I can't imagine, I would never, I would never think of doing that. Last question I have about this specific area. What about, like, what about public records, for example? Like things that are things that are a matter of public record. I mean, that could it, can I can I use that as a reason to exclude them from from the position? So let's say they were, you know, they were uh, there was something negative about them in the paper and I read it. Can I say, look, I don't want all that drama in my workplace and, and just decide not to hire them? It's a, it's a great question because everybody's Googling, everyone's going on LinkedIn. You know, I can tell people till they're, till I'm blue in the face, just don't do it. Or better yet, have HR do it. And then HR will know that they should only be sharing information with the hiring manager that is safe information, non-protected um, information, meaning you're not going to find out the person's age or race or religion from doing that kind of a Google search. Uh, but the long and the short of it is most of these laws, certainly the Fair Credit Reporting Act, only kick in if you're using a third party to do the search. So technically speaking, you're not confounded by the same um, limitations when you're doing your own personal search. It's just such a thorny issue because you could have found information that turns out not to be true. There was a relatively recent study that found um, something like 90% of all FBI records found online were fictional or, or fraudulent. So you can't, yeah, right. You can't rely upon the information you're finding on the internet and you then just missed out on a potentially good opportunity while also uh, finding out information that you never would have known about the person. And then it, the person could say, that's why they chose not to hire me. It's because they found out that I'm gay by doing their Google search or they found out uh, that who I voted for in the last election because I talked about it on my Facebook page. That's why I tell clients, if you are tempted to do that, make sure it's not the person making the decision whether or not to hire someone that's doing the search. That person can vet it and say, look, I was able to confirm where they worked because I went on LinkedIn and sure enough, I'm seeing positive things. They're not happening to mention that, you know, there was a rainbow flag in the picture behind them or things that could really trip an employer up if they then choose 
either not to hire the person or sometime in the future, they decide to terminate the person and they want to be able to insulate themselves from any discrimination. Okay. So basically what you've done with us in the 45, 50 minutes that we've been together, this was a, this was a consultation basically. So if someone wants a specific consultation from you, is that, can they reach out to you and just do a one-off consultation? Is that like a gateway engagement for hiring you? What is the, what is the best way for people to, you know, get to know you? And like, I don't want people to, I'm sure people do call you when they're in the middle of litigation or when a litigation springs up, but really they should have a relationship with you and you should be familiar with their business in advance so that you could hit the ground running if there's a litigation matter. So what's the best way for people to engage you to become familiar with their business in advance? I could not agree with you more. And I I always tell people it's so much cheaper to call me before the, you know, what hits the fan than after it's already spinning around. Um, Even though everyone thinks of these things as hypothetical and they don't like spending the money until it's a, a real urgent you're situation. You're saving but money. You're not spending money. I you're know, by engaging I know. you. They're 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 keeping themselves from. I would have made like sixteen mistakes before we had this conversation. So you're saving them money. You're preaching to a choir. I agree, and and I really like to get to know the business and help them through the entire process. Frankly, to avoid these kind of situations, which works against my favor, because obviously I make more money if I have litigation. Susan, but you know they're going to um, screw yes, up anyway. Absolutely. They could hire you, ask you yes. for your advice, ignore it, and then call you later and go, well, you know, Susan, so you told me this, but I decided to do it better by myself. <laughs> I feel like you've been eavesdropping on some of my uh, conversations lately. Um, yes, people can absolutely call me. I'll have to do um, a, some preliminary conflict check kind of questions to make sure that it's kosher for us to move forward. But I am more than happy to have introductory sort of audit what's going on kind of conversations before we go forward with any formal retention. You can find me on my firm's website, which is Thompson Coburn. um, Or you can, um, uh, my email is S-L-O-R-E-N-C, as in cat, at thompsoncoburn.com. I'm, I'm all over the web and more than happy to help out in any situation. And all of Susan's contact information, all of it is down in the show notes right below. Um, I highly encourage you, look, Susan's been so generous with the advice that she's given us today. I highly encourage you to reach out and, and talk to her. Now, Susan, usually I, we, I play some music here and I say, there, give us three things that we talked about today that people should take away. But here's the thing, folks, okay? Susan and I did the first like 45 minutes of this show two days ago, and then we came back and did the last 15 uh, today. So I can't remember all the stuff we talked about. So here, I'm going to give you... Here are the three things I think you should take away that I remember from our conversation with Susan rather than put Susan on the spot. The first thing is, look, if you want to um, make sure that you're on the, if you want to make sure you're on the right track, don't put a policy in place that you're not going to enforce. That was a, that was a big takeaway from the first part of our conversation. So you think you need an employee handbook. Well, I mean, maybe you do need an employee handbook, but unless you're gonna enforce every single thing in that handbook, I think just create specific policies for the things that you are prepared to enforce. Am I good there, Susan, is that right? I am right there with you. Second thing that I learned from Susan that you need to take away is 
the difference between uh, an independent contractor and and an employee, the, the line is finer than you think, okay? So just because you, you know, are gonna ignore the person, that doesn't mean they're an independent contractor, okay? So what you need to do is, if, you, if you're gonna do this pervasively with several people, and there's, you know, you, you think there might be some significant risk, call Susan, vet it with Susan first, and then you can determine whether they're an employee or an independent contractor because it only takes one lawsuit and you're going to end up blowing your entire budget for the year to defend yourself if this person files a claim, right? And then the final thing, the third thing I would say that we can take away from our our time together is about background checks, right? So if you're going to do the if you're going to go on Facebook, you're going to go on LinkedIn, you're going to Google the person. The hiring manager shouldn't do that. Somebody in HR or somebody separate and apart should do it because you don't want to be tangled up in in that mess if uh, if they end up filing a claim that you know you didn't hire them because you saw something online that gave away something that you shouldn't have known. How did I do? Was that those those are three good things. I mean, I'd hire you tomorrow. <laughs> you can come work. With uh, me. Susan, it was such a pleasure. Listen, you are a a fountain of information, and it was so valuable. And I greatly appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the invitation. This was fun. All right, folks. We are. Remember, the show is brought to you by Sandrowski Corporate Advisors. So, if you are starting a business, or you're thinking about selling your business, or you have inherent risk in your business, and you want someone with financial perspective, solid financial perspective to evaluate it. You got to call Sandrowski Corporate Advisors. You can reach out to them at 866-717-1607. Also, don't forget my Revenue Roadmap Guide. You can get it for free, revenueroadmapguide.com. Enter your contact info there. My free gift to you for watching and listening to the show. I am Dave Lorenzo, and this has been the Inside BS Show. I thank you for joining us, and until tomorrow, here's hoping you... Make a great living and live a great life.